In this lesson, we see why the best way to study the biochemistry of the citric acid cycle and review it is to look at how its metabolites get in to your toilet every time you pee. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Complex science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 11th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. Our goals today are threefold. Number one, we want to review what we've learned about the citric acid cycle. Number two, we want to incorporate the concepts of the flow of energy through the cycle. And number three, we want to take this knowledge and apply it to a clinical context by looking at how we would interpret patterns of citric acid cycle metabolites on a urinary organic acids test. Now, we have not talked about the whole breadth and depth of knowledge needed to comprehensively look at the patterns those metabolites could exhibit on a urinary organic acids test. But we have learned enough to look for three specific patterns. One is the pattern of energy overload. Number two is the pattern of oxidative stress. And number three is the pattern of thiamine deficiency. So without further ado, let's start taking a look. Shown on the screen is a summary of the citric acid cycle. Oxaloacetate forms citrate by condensing with acetyl-CoA to form the intermediate citral-CoA, and the hydrolysis of citral-CoA releases CoA itself, forming citrate that water enters as the first oxygen of three that we need to release two carbon dioxide. Citrate is isomerized to isocitrate, which is then oxidized to alpha-ketoglutarate. That is the first oxidation step and the first time we take away electrons in the form of NADH. It's also the first decarboxylation step where we release CO2. The conversion of alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA is the second oxidation step the second time we produce NADH, and the second and final time that we release carbon dioxide. CoA comes in to harvest some of that energy and sequester it in the thioester bond of succinyl-CoA. During the conversion of succinyl-CoA to succinate, phosphate comes in to grab the energy in the thioester bond, releasing CoA and forming ATP in substrate-level phosphorylation. ATP hydrolysis elsewhere adds the second oxygen atom to phosphate that comes into succinyl phosphate and leaves it there to form succinate, which carries that oxygen, thus incorporating the second oxygen atom needed to release 2CO2. Succinate is oxidized to fumarate, producing FADH2 for the first and only time, but grabbing the third pair of electrons that will go to the electron transport chain. Oxidation prepares fumarate to accept water during the hydration to malate. And the hydration to malate brings in the third out of three, meaning the final oxygen atom needed to release 2CO2. 
The oxidation of malate to oxaloacetate takes that oxygen, oxidizes it to a keto group. In the process, NAD plus takes away the fourth and final pair of electrons that will be brought to the electron transport chain as the third and final molecule of NADH produced. There are two molecules that have alpha keto groups, that's alpha ketoglutarate and oxaloacetate. Forming the alpha keto group on either of these is important to maintain exchange between these alpha keto acids and alpha amino acids, which allows entry and exit of amino acids with the citric acid cycle. Oxidation of malate to oxaloacetate is also what prepares oxaloacetate to be in need of electrons so that it can accept acetyl-CoA to form the next turn of the cycle. Shown on the screen is a sample report from the Genova Diagnostics Ion Profile, and they show you the value for each of the citric acid cycle intermediates. These are not diagnostic thresholds. They're simply quintiles of where you place within the population of people who have had these tests run. So you're in the bottom quintile, you're in the middle, you're in the top quintile, and so on. If you look on the left, you'll see that they include all of the citric acid cycle intermediates, even cis-aconitate, which is only a reaction intermediate during the conversion of citrate to isocitrate, except they do not include oxaloacetate. They include hydroxymethylglutarate, which we'll ignore for now because it's not part of the citric acid cycle and we haven't talked about it yet. But the question we want to answer now is, why doesn't? this profile include a measurement for oxaloacetate? The answer is that oxaloacetate is maintained at vanishingly small concentrations within cells and is never going to accumulate to the point where it spills over into the urine in measurable quantities. But why is that true? Shown on the screen are the delta G naught primes of the reactions of the citric acid cycle. Remember the delta G naught prime is making assumptions about things like temperature and concentration that aren't necessarily true in the actual context of what happens in cellular metabolism, but enable us to put a quantitative objective number on a reaction whose true favorability is always gonna be in flux. And what we see when we look at these is that almost all of these numbers are negative. There's two exceptions. The conversion of citrate to isocitrate has a small positive delta G. The conversion of malate to oxaloacetate has a large positive delta G. Only malate conversion to oxaloacetate out of all of these reactions has a large positive delta G, making it thermodynamically very unfavorable. The conversion of malate to oxaloacetate catalyzed by malate dehydrogenase is the conversion of an alcohol to a ketone. Alcohols are more stable than ketones, which is why in standard conditions with equal concentrations, this reaction would actually favor the production of malate and not oxaloacetate. In order to understand why, all things being equal, alcohols are more stable than ketones, we need to review the basic geometry of chemical bonds. Shown on the screen are the two types of 
electron orbitals that electrons would occupy in the second row elements like carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, or the first row elements like hydrogen that are most abundant in biology. The first type of orbital is shown on the left. It's called an S orbital, and it is symmetrical and spherical surrounding the nucleus. The second type of orbital is shown on the right, and it's called a P orbital. A P orbital extends as two lobes, one in either direction, departing from the nucleus along one of the axes of the three-dimensional Cartesian coordinates. So the P orbital along the x-axis goes horizontally, the P orbital along the y-axis goes vertically, and the P orbital along the z-axis goes down the axis of depth. The way these orbitals are arranged into electron shells is shown on the bottom. The first electron shell has a single s orbital, and it's called a 1s orbital because it's in the first shell. The second electron shell has four orbitals, a single s orbital called a 2s orbital because it's in the second shell, and three p orbitals, each called 2p orbitals because they're in the second shell. Each of the 2p orbitals is subscripted with the letter that corresponds to its axis. So there's a 2px orbital, a 2py orbital, and a 2pz orbital arranged in space as just described. Each orbital can fit a pair of electrons. And if you count up the electrons that could fit in first and second shells, you'll see that the first shell contains one orbital, which corresponds to two electrons. The second shell contains four orbitals, which corresponds to eight electrons. These two types of orbitals can make two different types of chemical bonds. One's called a sigma bond, the other is called a pi bond. A sigma bond forms when electrons meet head-on. And two s orbitals can come together to form a sigma bond because they can meet head-on. The horizontal axis p orbital, the px orbital, has two lobes that can face each other in side-by-side -side atoms. And those lobes that are facing each other can come together to form a sigma bond, just like two s orbitals could. Similarly, we could have an s orbital and, an, and the x-axis p orbital of a different atom coming together to form a sigma bond. Sigma bonds are very strong because they're formed by head-on interactions. By contrast, the second type of bond is called a pi bond, and that happens when two atoms have their vertical axis or y-axis p orbitals meet together in parallel. In this case, a half a bond is formed on top and the other half of the bond is formed on the bottom. Because they're meeting in parallel instead of head-on, the pi bond is weaker than the sigma bond. This has critical implications for the weakness and strength of single versus double bonds. A sigma bond is the most common type of chemical bond because all single bonds, as depicted on the top row, are sigma bonds. By contrast, all double bonds consist of one sigma bond and one pi bond. 
The sigma bond forms with the x-axis p orbitals as described earlier, and the second bond forms with the y-axis p orbitals overlapping in parallel with a half a bond on top and a half a bond on the bottom as described before. If you're just looking at the bond between these two atoms, a double bond is stronger than a single bond because you're adding the strength of the strong sigma bond plus the weak pi bond. And the weak pi bond adds to the strength instead of diluting it. However, things change when you're looking at the overall strength of the molecule itself. Let's look at the oxidation of a generic alcohol to a generic ketone. The atoms shown in purple are the ones whose bonding geometry is depicted in the bottom. In an alcohol, you have a carbon that is sigma bonded to an oxygen and also sigma bonded to a hydrogen. If you oxidize the alcohol to a ketone, that same carbon is now still sigma bonded to the oxygen, but instead of being sigma bonded to the hydrogen, you have an additional pi bond with the same oxygen. The difference between these two configurations is you've removed a strong sigma bond with hydrogen and replaced it with a weak pi bond with oxygen. The net change for that carbon is the movement of the strong bond to the weak second bond with oxygen. So that carbon is in a stronger position in the alcohol and a weaker position in a ketone. For that reason, the thermodynamic equilibrium between an alcohol and a ketone is gonna favor the alcohol. If we come back to the delta G naught primes of the citric acid cycle reactions, then we'll see that because malate to oxaloacetate involves the oxidation of an alcohol to a ketone, it's energetically unfavorable with its large positive delta G. That represents a significant problem for the citric acid cycle because it has to devise a way to make malate continually oxidize to oxaloacetate to allow the cycle to continue turning despite the fact that there's a very large energetic hump to get over here. The way it does this is it manipulates the concentrations of products and reactants, thereby making the true delta G, as opposed to the delta G not prime, closer to energetic favorability. The true delta G is equal to the delta G not prime plus R times T times the natural logarithm of the products over the reactants. In this equation, R is the gas constant, which is 8.315 times 10 to the negative third kilojoules per mole. T is the temperature in kelvins. And products, shown in brackets at the top, means the multiplication product of the concentrations of the products expressed in moles per liter, or molar, and Reactants also similarly refers to the multiplication product of the concentrations of the reactants expressed in molar. Now, we don't need to calculate anything for the purposes of this lesson, therefore we can simplify this to the principles involved at the core. So we can say R is a constant, so let's ignore it. 
T is going to reflect body temperature, which is relatively similar and homogeneous across time and across space within our cells. So it's more or less a constant, and we can ignore it. The natural logarithm is a mathematical manipulation that's always applied to this reaction. So that effectively is a constant in terms of how it impacts the principle. The variable, the true variable part of this equation is products and reactants. Products is on the top. So the greater the concentration of products, the more positive the delta G is and the less energetically favorable it is. By contrast, reactants is on the bottom. Therefore, the more reactants you have, the, negative, the more negative or the smaller the delta G, therefore, the more energetically favorable this is. So the strategy to maintain energetic favorability of the production of oxaloacetate is going to be twofold. Number one, oxaloacetate is a product. Maintain it at vanishingly small concentrations. Number two, NAD plus is a reactant and NADH is a product. Maintain a high ratio of NAD plus to NADH. Mitochondria tend to maintain a ratio of NAD plus to NADH of seven to eight through oxidation of NADH in the electron transport chain. Together, between the high ratio of NAD plus to NADH and the vanishingly small concentration of oxaloacetate is how you take this large positive delta G and turn it into something more energetically favorable. Shown on the screen is the delta G naught primes that we looked at before in the second row at each reaction and the actual delta G in the top row. The actual delta G is not a true value because the concentrations are always in flux, but this is experimentally taken from pig heart and it gives us a sense of how the metabolic strategies of the cell are affecting the true delta G at least in the sense of what direction is it moving in relative to the delta G naught prime. And what we see is that by manipulating the concentration of oxaloacetate and the ratio of NAD plus to NADH, we take this large positive delta G and we move it to near zero. A delta G of near zero means a freely reversible reaction. You're at equilibrium, so any change in one or the other is going to tip that equilibrium in favor of the opposite. In other words, if oxaloacetate accumulates beyond vanishingly small concentrations, it's just gonna spill right over to malate. And if we get malate coming in, it's gonna move right into oxaloacetate. Because this is near equilibrium, then the only way to get this direction in favor of oxaloacetate is to maintain this direction where we suck oxaloacetate through. So we're actually pulling it through like a vacuum. The way we do that is with the very energetically favorable reaction where oxaloacetate converts to citrate. The fact that this step is energetically favorable is itself remarkable. We're taking a four-carbon oxaloacetate and condensing it with a two-carbon acetyl group, turning two molecules into one. That is a decrease in entropy because you're taking small things that could be 
mixed and dispersed and putting them together. This is the only step of the citric acid cycle where we're actually building things up. Everything else is breaking them apart. So how on earth is this energetically favorable? Well, it's because the acetyl group comes as acetyl-CoA carrying the high-energy thioester bond. Breaking that high-energy th- high thioester bond releases so much energy that it compensates for building up the citrate molecule and makes even the delta G naught prime the most energetically favorable out of all the citric acid cycle reactions. But we take this very negative delta G naught prime and we make it even more negative, almost doubling its value. How do we do that? We maintain an enormous concentration of of acetyl-CoA. And that puts pressure to spill everything over into citrate. That sucks the vanishingly small concentration of oxaloacetate into citrate very reliably. Because we're doing this, oxaloacetate never builds up enough to spill out into the urine at measurable concentrations. Now, there are some other principles that we can also learn from this. For example, the conversion of citrate to isocitrate has a small positive delta G. The buildup of citrate from this first step being so energetically favorable brings that close to equilibrium, allowing free reversibility of citrate and isocitrate. That's actually really useful because if isocitrate builds up, citrate accumulates, and citrate, like we talked about in lesson four, is transported to the cytosol under those conditions and used as the substrate for fatty acid synthesis. Were this not freely reversible, that couldn't take place. The next two steps are very energetically favorable because they have a massive increase in entropy that's caused by releasing carbon dioxide. Not only do you split the molecule apart, but one of the pieces is a small gas that disperses into the atmosphere. That makes the delta G not prime negative for both of these reactions, and it gets even more negative because of this incoming flux of citrate pushing through. Now that the decarboxylation reactions are over, we are past this stage where we have very negative delta G values. If you look at the rest of the reactions, the true delta G is maintained very close to equilibrium for the entire rest of the cycle, meaning most of these are freely reversible and whatever accumulates is gonna be totally dependent on the concentrations one way or the other. Whereas these three steps, the first step, the third step, and the fourth are so energetically favorable that they're for all practical purposes irreversible. There's no such thing as a truly irreversible reaction, but we can refer to something as more or less for all practical purposes irreversible when it's very energetically favorable. And in the context of the citric acid cycle, these three reactions, the conversion of oxaloacetate to citrate, the conversion of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, and the conversion of alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA are the three irreversible reactions of the citric acid cycle. 
If these are irreversible, that means that you've made a commitment to doing them. If you're committed to making that reaction happen, then you want it highly regulated so that you don't waste a commitment to go from one place to the other when you actually don't need to go there, thereby conserving energy and allowing you to do with what your metabolites what you most need to do in those moments. And so what we'll see then is that those three irreversible steps are the ones that are primarily allosterically regulated. Indeed, as we saw in lesson five, isocitrate dehydrogenase and alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase are the two steps inside the cycle that are allosterically regulated by markers of energy status. ATP and NADH act as high energy signals, ADP and calcium act as low energy signals, and alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is additionally regulated by succinyl-CoA. In addition, there is conflicting information about whether citrate synthase is similarly regulated. I've depicted it as inhibited by NADH and succinyl-CoA on this screen. In the literature and in textbooks, there's controversy over the regulation of the mammalian enzyme. We know that the bacterial enzyme is very regulated and that it's regulated by ATP. Some textbooks will gloss over the difference between the bacterial enzyme and the mammalian enzyme and point that out as if it applied to both. Some textbooks will say that only the bacterial enzyme is regulated and the mammalian enzyme is not. When I've looked into the literature, it appears to me that this enzyme probably is regulated by NADH and succinyl-CoA, but there's some controversy that I don't think anyone has definitively settled about whether the in vitro experiments truly apply in the in vivo context. So let's put a little question mark around this regulation. Either way, looking at it as depicted on the screen, the three irreversible steps are the ones that are allosterically regulated. Further, if we're thinking about how this is gonna impact urine metabolites, then the regulation of citrate synthase doesn't matter because if it's inhibited under high energy conditions, it's inhibited because you already have too many molecules coming into the cycle. And because it's regulating entry into the cycle instead of conversion of metabolites, it's not gonna affect the proportion of the metabolites in the cycle. Therefore, it's not gonna have a big impact on the various ratios of urine metabolites that we could see on the organic acids test. But these two enzymes will. Now, in this slide, I've used the term energy overload. That's a non-technical term that I like to use that pulls together several technical concepts. The technical concepts that you would find in the textbooks or the scientific literature are twofold. The first is the energy charge of the cell. Energy charge reflects the proportion of ATP ADP, and AMP. Since some energy can be derived from ADP, it's an intermediate signal, whereas ATP is a high energy signal and AMP is a low energy signal. Biochemists may calculate the energy charge and be referring to those proportions. In addition, we could refer to the redox state of the redox couples. That translates to two effects. One is the redox state of the NADH to NAD plus couple. The second is the redox state of the FADH2 and FAD couple. Under high energy conditions, both of these are very reduced. 
Therefore, I'm combining a high energy charge with a very reduced redox status of NADH and FADH2 and grouping them into a term that I'm calling energy overload. Under conditions of energy overload, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is inhibited, isocitrate dehydrogenase is inhibited, and these two metabolites are backed up. Since the conversion of citrate to isocitrate is freely reversible, that also backs up citrate and potentially cisaconitate, the intermediate within the active site of the enzyme that could dissociate from the enzyme if that reaction is getting backed up. So the first pattern that we'll look for in urinary metabolites is the pattern of energy overload. This is accumulation of all three initial metabolites in the citric acid cycle plus cisaconitate, the intermediate between citrate and isocitrate. If the whole early part of the cycle is backed up similarly, that suggests energy overload. Oxidative stress is the second pattern that we'll look for, and this pattern is different. Hydrogen peroxide inhibits three enzymes of the citric acid cycle, but in different order of importance. It very strongly inhibits aconitase. At normal physiological concentrations of hydrogen peroxide, you get some inhibition of aconitase, but not the other two enzymes. At extreme concentrations of hydrogen peroxide, you can completely shut down aconitase. You get inhibition of the other enzymes, but you can't completely shut them down. So hydrogen peroxide inhibits aconitase first, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase second, and succinate dehydrogenase only under extreme conditions of oxidative stress. If you only inhibit aconitase, you're gonna get a buildup of citrate at the expense of isocitrate. In order to compensate for that, you get increased consumption of glutamate, becoming alpha-ketoglutarate and continuing to replete the citric acid cycle. As such, the cycle keeps going and it's primarily citrate that accumulates and isocitrate that's low. If reactive oxygen species get worse, that's when you have inhibition of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, and that's the step where you actually start decreasing the feed-through of the other metabolites, and you actually get major declines in energy production within that cell. Under very extreme conditions, you'd get an increased ratio of succinate to fumarate, even though the overall production of succinate itself is declining because of the backup earlier in the cycle. The vulnerability of these three enzymes can be explained by their sulfur content. As we've looked at several times before, sulfur is very redox reactive, which is why it's actually useful in energy metabolism. Aconitase has an iron sulfur cluster in the catalytic active site that acts as a redox switch, as we talked about in lesson five. Alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase has a lipoate residue that has sulfhydryl groups that are vulnerable to inhibition by oxidative stress. Succinate dehydrogenase is a very unique enzyme, and we haven't talked about these details yet. Succinate dehydrogenase is not freely moving in the mitochondrial matrix. It's actually part of complex two in the electron transport chain, so it's embedded in the mitochondrial membrane and it forms a direct physical link between the electron transport chain and the citric acid cycle. 
When we talk about succinate dehydrogenase, we mean the succinate dehydrogenase activity attributable to complex two of the respiratory chain, where the succinate dehydrogenase catalytic part of that complex is facing the mitochondrial matrix and is able to interface with the citric acid cycle. So succinate becomes fumarate, which reduces the FAD prosthetic group of that enzyme within the overall structure of complex two. And FADH2 passes those electrons to the iron sulfur clusters of complex two. Those iron sulfur clusters are the part of the electron transport chain that would accept electrons from complex one, and that in either case passes them to coenzyme Q10. So I don't know for sure why they have different vulnerability across these enzymes, but it looks to me as follows. Aconitase is a very simple enzyme where the iron sulfur cluster is very exposed, so it's most vulnerable. The lipoate moiety of alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is buried within this massive enzymatic factory, deep within it. Whereas the iron sulfur clusters are in an even more complicated structure where they're not directly part of the succinate dehydrogenase activity, they're in other parts of this complex, and so they're least exposed to the reactive oxygen species that are floating around in the mitochondrial matrix. Therefore, the degree to which the sulfur is exposed likely explains the relative inhibition of these three enzymes. So if we're looking in the urine, the earliest and strongest sign of oxidative stress is an elevation of the ratio of citrate to isocitrate. If oxidative stress gets worse, alpha-ketoglutarate will increase. If it gets really bad, the succinate to fumarate ratio will increase. Because alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is the one enzyme of the cycle that's dependent on thiamine, then a specific elevation of alpha-ketoglutarate that is not accompanied by increases in all the other early metabolites, which would indicate energy overload, and is not accompanied by an increased ratio of citrate to isocitrate, which would indicate oxidative stress, when it elevates specifically in an isolated manner, that's very strongly suggestive of thiamine deficiency. Nevertheless, we should keep in mind that the vulnerability to thiamine deficiency corresponds also to the presence of lipoic acid and its vulnerability to inhibition by heavy metals and other toxins. If we look at the ion profile, one interesting thing is if we look at the 95% reference intervals, we can see the fingerprint of the principles we've been talking about. 95% reference interval means that 95% of people fall between the numbers that are listed here. What's rather remarkable is that only citrate, cisaconitate, and isocitrate have 95% reference intervals that does not include the limit of detection. That means that 95% of people have at least some degree of excretion of those three metabolites. By contrast, all of the other metabolites have 95% reference intervals that includes the limit of detection, reflecting the fact that instead of giving a range, they say less than a number. That means that 
there are many people, or at least some people within that 95%, that have no detectable excretion of those metabolites. Well, why would that be the case? Imagine a healthy person who always is gonna have some degree of allosteric inhibition of citric acid cycle enzymes that are gonna go up and down depending on energy status. The person may exercise, inhibition drops. The person may eat food, inhibition rises. Well, in that person, isocitrate dehydrogenase activity will be allosterically inhibited. And you may not need to rely on the inhibition of the next enzyme in the sense that if allosteric inhibition of isocitrate dehydrogenase is sufficient, you're not gonna get a lot of alpha-ketoglutarate. Even if you inhibit the next enzyme, there's just not alpha-ketoglutarate accumulating because it's not being produced. Therefore, many healthy people for whom that regulation is the only regulation that leads to accumulation will have backups of everything prior to alpha-ketoglutarate to some degree all the time, but they never need to rely on a backup of alpha-ketoglutarate. By contrast, take the person in whom energy overload is a more constant state or is more severe. That person has spillover of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate and they need to rely on the inhibition of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase to prevent further metabolism, and in that person, alpha-ketoglutarate accumulates. Or other health problems, such as moderate to extreme oxidative stress or thiamine deficiency, also increase alpha-ketoglutarate. Therefore, you can have plenty of people with no detectable alpha-ketoglutarate, but you can also have people with health problems that have lots of excretion of that compound. Furthermore, we can look at these last four metabolites whose reference intervals includes the limit of detection, and we can see that alpha-ketoglutarate and succinate have relatively large upper values, whereas fumarate and malate have exceedingly small upper values meaning 95% of people have hardly any fumarate and malate ex being excreted into their urine. If you think back to all of the regulation by energy status and reactive oxygen species that we've talked about in this lesson, it all takes place at succinate dehydrogenase or earlier, elevating all of the early metabolites but leaving fumarate and malate alone. If we come back to the citric acid cycle summary, it could be really easy to get misled by this diagram. Because if you're thinking about niacin and riboflavin, you could look and say, well, niacin is used for this enzyme, this one, and this one, but not the others. And riboflavin is used for this enzyme, but not the others. That's very deceptive for two reasons. One, there are hidden uses of riboflavin. For example, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase doesn't produce FADH2 as a final product, but it's still dependent on riboflavin to transfer electrons to NAD+. Furthermore, all the enzymes that make NADH, when the NADH goes to the electron transport chain, one point that we haven't talked about yet is that part of the electron transport chain itself is FMN, which is flavin mononucleotide, one of the other uses of riboflavin besides FAD. 
So riboflavin is important as an acceptor of those electrons, and if riboflavin is deficient, that's gonna back up all of the niacin-dependent citric acid cycle enzymes. So you really can't differentiate between riboflavin and niacin in that way. Furthermore, niacin and riboflavin are used in the metabolism of the citric acid cycle, in the delivery of the electron transport chain, and in the metabolism of protein, fat, and carbs that delivers carbons and electrons into the citric acid cycle in the first place. And we haven't talked about that yet. So looking at the effect of niacin and riboflavin deficiency is extremely complicated and is not something we're in a position to judge at this point. Nevertheless, we've been able to talk about three key principles that are very important for interpreting urinary organic acids. In the first pattern, we have backup of all the early metabolites of the citric acid cycle, and that indicates energy overload. In the second pattern, we have oxidative stress causing a high ratio of citrate to isocitrate. As oxidative stress gets worse, it elevates alpha-ketoglutarate, and if it gets even worse, it elevates the succinate to fumarate ratio. And the third pattern is that in thiamine deficiency, alpha-ketoglutarate rises like it does in the other conditions, but in a more isolated manner without the other signs. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio, downloadable transcripts, hyperlinks to further reading, and community forums. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.